0: Join Global Genes September 18th and 20th in San Diego for the 2019 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. As the largest gathering of rare disease patients, caregivers, thought leaders, and other rare disease stakeholders in the world, the summit is an unparalleled opportunity to forge meaningful connections with other rare advocates and take home actionable strategies and tools to. Accelerate change. To learn more or to register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash PA Summit. That's globalgenes.org forward slash PA Summit with the PA and S in Summit all uppercase. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. David Fegenbaum was in medical school, he became stricken with a rare autoimmune disease that nearly killed him. Though he recovered, he would suffer recurring life-threatening flares only to discover the poor state of research into his condition. Fegenbaum chronicles his rare disease journey and his efforts to drive research and find treatments in his new book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Fickenbaum, who is Executive Director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, will be featured at this year's Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit, which begins in San Diego, September 18th. Ahead of the summit, we spoke to him about his experience as a rare disease patient, his efforts to find treatments for his condition, and how his innovative approach to developing a patient-driven research agenda has provided a roadmap for other rare disease organizations To follow suit,
1: David, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be back.
0: First, congratulations on the publication of Chasing My Cure. Uh, It's a great read, it's very engaging. And even though we've spoken many times, I've come to know your story. There was plenty of new insight to glean from your experiences and even a few surprises, including the fact that you're a hardcore Borat fan.
1: That, that's right, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, uh, that you enjoyed it, and um, yeah, you know I, I learned a lot about life from my near death experiences, uh, lessons that I want to share um, broadly. and um, I guess yeah, mixed mixed in there are some, uh, some other experiences or some, I guess secrets like my love for Borod.
0: Well, before we talk about Cassiman's disease and your own journey as a patient, a, a doctor and researcher. Perhaps we can begin with your mother, her illness and and death when you were a sophomore in college. How did that color your own experiences both as a medical student and as a patient?
1: Absolutely. My mom's diagnosis while I was uh, freshman year of of college and then her, her passing a year later had a really profound impact on my life. She was one of my closest friends and was such an amazing supporter in my life for so long. So her diagnosis and passing really shook my core. Um, I, I learned a lot about how to face adversity from her, watching the way that she handled her own diagnosis and the way that she somehow maintained uh, a positive outlook at, on life. And, and, and something she did that was, was quite special, you know, um, we often talk about um, how important it is to find silver linings in the midst of really tough times and how that's a mark of someone with a strong will. Um, but what, what my mom did uh, that really stood out for me was she didn't just find silver linings linings. She created silver linings. So in the midst of really tough experiences, she asked, you know, what can I do to help to turn this really tough experience into something that can be positive? And and that sort of just watching her and the way she did that really inspired me Um, after her passing to want to create an organization in her memory called AMF, which is a grief support network um, to support young adults dealing with um, loss, particularly during college. And then with my diagnosis with Castleman disease, um, kind of taking uh, that that same lesson that, you know, if I'm going to be diagnosed with this disease, I'd like to be able to create something positive um, for the world um, that could come from this really difficult experience, and that's creating the Castleman disease collaborative network and um, making progress progress against Castleman disease.
0: As a medical student, you became quite ill at the time. You were planning on becoming a a clinical oncologist. What happened?
1: Yeah, I was totally healthy treating patients here at the University of Pennsylvania as a third-year medical student, and um, out of nowhere, I experienced multi-organ failure, and I was hospitalized in the intensive care unit, um, really actively dying. Uh, unfortunately, it took about 11 weeks for the diagnosis to be made. And I was so sick by the time the diagnosis was made that I actually had my last rights read to me back in November of 2010 because the doctors didn't think I would survive. Um, fortunately, uh, I was diagnosed uh, with idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, a rare and deadly disorder that kind of straddles the intersection between he- hematology and, and, and also um, autoimmunity. And um, I was able to be treated with chemotherapy that um, began to turn things around, and uh, fortunately I survived, but unfortunately I have had a number of relapses and um, have had five um, uh, brushes with death.
0: Castleman's disease is not easy to diagnose. It's often mistaken for other diseases. What did it take for you to get a diagnosis, and how much of a problem is this today in the case of Castleman's disease?
1: Yeah. So um, back when I was diagnosed, there was no diagnostic criteria. Um, there had never been an effort to bring together experts to build consensus on what do you need to see to make the diagnosis. So back then, you had to hope that you would be treated by a hematologist that maybe would suspect this was Castleman disease or at least suspect that, someone has lymph- that the patient has lymphoma. And then you'd need to have a lymph node biopsy done, and you'd need that lymph node to be reviewed by a pathologist who knows what to look for in Castleman disease. Um, Fortunately for me, those things happened just in time. As I mentioned, I had my last rights read to me um, right around the time the diagnosis was made, so it happened literally just in time. Um, But today, uh, thanks to the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, we've actually established a diagnostic criteria so any patient that is suspected of possibly having Castleman disease, specifically the idiopathic multicentric subtype, can actually, their physician can evaluate them and has a specific checklist of 11 things that they evaluate for. And depending on the levels and, and the presence or absence of those 11, what we call minor criteria, as well as the requirement for lymph node biopsy and multiple regions of lymphadenopathy, that a doctor can actually diagnose idiopathic multicentric disease much more easily than, than one could um, back when I was uh, diagnosed just in time.
0: One of the things I found most surprising about your case, or maybe I should say unnerving, was how many how the doctors and medical systems failed you along the way. This includes, among other things, the fact that there was a drug for your condition that was approved in Japan and available mm-hmm. in the United States for another indication, but even though doctors could have prescribed it for you, they didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. How does something like this happen?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And um, in hindsight, it's, it's really, I think, unnerving is a good way to describe it, just like you said. Um, I think that uh, it highlights that there's so much in medicine that is unfortunately left up to chance. You just have to kind of hope that your doctor knows about this or heard about that. And what we try to do with the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network is to try to bring together all this information in one place, so that physicians know what's available. What are your options as a doctor? What are your options as a patient to treat? You know, to be treated. And um, and so we've worked really hard to try to get it, get it away from just you know random chance that hoping your doctor knows about this. To really making sure that the information is presented to them um, in a central place that review articles are written that up to date is in fact up to date with information. These are all things things that, um, that unfortunately just were not in place before for Castleman's. And unfortunately, that's the case for a lot of rare diseases, that um, you have to find the world's expert. And even the world's expert, the, the, the big surprise for me was that even the world's expert doesn't know everything there is to know about a disease, if the world doesn't know everything there is to know about a disease, you know, the the world's expert can only know as much as the world knows. And so for me, finding the world's expert was not the the end of my journey. It was almost kind of the middle point of my journey, finding that right person, but then realizing that finding that person wasn't enough because the world didn't yet know enough about the disease and that we would really need to push that forward.
0: Well, that brings me to one of the more amusing Parts of your book is when you made your way to Arkansas to see the expert on the condition, a shuttle driver who took you from mm-hmm. the airport to the doctor. He recognized you as a person having Castleman's disease. <laughs> does, does that suggest anything about the mindset of physicians?
1: I, I don't... I, I think it suggests a, a lot about about the healthcare system that, you know, it took 11 weeks for me to be diagnosed at, at major medical centers. Um, but just as you said, the shuttle driver, when he saw me walk in, said, oh, you look like a Castleman disease patient. And that was mainly because I had so much fluid all over my body. It's one of the hallmarks of Castleman disease is patients will gain Fifty to seventy pounds of fluid, basically surrounding all of your organs and your legs and your belly, everywhere, um, and uh, and certainly uh, this this cancer center that I was going to has a lot of Castleman's patients. So so you can recognize these Castleman's patients in this this cancer center in Little Rock, but I, I think that it, it does highlight that there are clinical subtleties about rare diseases in particular that clinicians you almost can't expect them to know all of these subtleties about the 10,000 diseases that are out there. Um, You can't expect them to know everything, but I think that it, it highlights that, you know, we have a ways to go to get them to know something about many of these rare diseases, even if you can't get them to know everything.
0: At the time you were diagnosed, what was known about the disease? How common was it? and What treatment options were available?
1: So back when I was diagnosed, um, we knew that idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease involved this one particular molecule called interleukin-6. Everyone, um, ha- everyone uh, whether you have Castleman's or not, uses interleukin-6 as a way to kind of ignite the immune system and to get the immune cells to become activated. It's one of the immune cells' favorite, what are called cytokines or, or, or signaling molecules, to basically turn on other parts of the immune system. But what we know about idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease back then was that a lot of patients have really elevated interleukin-6 And we knew that a drug was in development called siltuximab that targets interleukin-6. And so the one thing we knew about the disease was that this one thing was high, and there was a drug in development that inhibited that one thing. And so there was a lot of excitement about um, that drug and what it could mean for patients. Unfortunately, we really didn't know much more than that. We didn't know why interleukin-6 was high. We didn't know what cell types were making the interleukin-6. We didn't know what was going on inside those cells for why they were making lots of interleukin-6. So there was still a lot unknown. But for people like myself, I said, well, maybe it doesn't matter knowing why as long as the drug works. Um, But unfortunately, or well, fortunately, the drug does work in about a third to one half of patients, which is wonderful because it's gone on to get FDA approval. But unfortunately, there's still about half of us or a little bit over half of us where that drug doesn't work. And so for patients like me with idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease who don't get better with that one FDA-approved drug, um, we require chemotherapy, uh, chemotherapy that brings us back from from the dead sometimes, but unfortunately doesn't work for all of us. And so um, we were in a position back then where we knew very little. There was a drug that targeted the the one thing that we did know about, but there was nothing else coming down the pipeline.
0: What role does off-label drug use play in treating Castleman disease today?
1: This is something that I'm really excited about and passionate about. In Castleman disease, and specifically in my case, I'm on a drug that was initially developed for kidney transplantation that we've decided to try to treat my Castleman disease And I've been in my longest remission ever. It's been five and a half years since my last relapse. Before I was started on this treatment, I nearly died five times in three and a half years. This drug is clearly making a difference for me, and it's saving my life. What I'm excited about with off-label drug use is that there are 1,500 already FDA approved drugs. And as the listeners for this podcast are well aware, 95% of the 7,000 rare diseases don't have a single FDA approved drug. So This drug helping me and saving my life is potentially an example of other drugs that are already FDA-approved for one thing but may actually be treatments for another disease, something that I think is really exciting for patients like me. Um, We need new drug development, but, of course, new drug development can take years and lots and lots of money. So the idea that there might be a drug that's already FDA approved and maybe down the street at a pharmacy is something that gives me tremendous amount of hope. If we can do the work and utilize the new tools that are available to us as scientists and physicians to identify drugs that might be able to help our patients, I think it's really important that we invest the effort and the time into figuring out which one of these drugs might actually be a solution for me or someone that I love That already FDA-approved, even if it was developed for something else. This is something I talk about quite a bit in my book, and I hope that we're able to initiate a discussion um, and really highlight the potential for these off-label drugs.
0: Well, it was after your first relapse that you decided to take a deep dive in to look at the state of research into the disease. What did you find, and what was the problem with the way research was being conducted?
1: Yes, I found that there were a number of problems and a number of hurdles. I mean, first off, there were some people doing research in various parts around the world, but none of it was coordinated. So the, Individuals in Japan and France and a few places in the U.S. that were doing Castleman disease research had never even met or even spoken before. they had written papers and they'd read one another's papers, but that was it. They'd never gotten together. They'd never discussed a strategy or a plan or maybe how they could share the results. Importantly, when you have rare diseases, you just don't have enough patients at any one hospital or medical system to really be able to have the 50, 100 or more samples you need to gain really meaningful insights. So researchers were doing studies of two and three and five samples at a time which were, were finding making observations, but they certainly were, were difficult to interpret because the disease um, is quite heterogeneous or it, it's kind of different from patient to patient. So it's hard to find trends across just two or three samples. So people were publishing work done on just a few samples, but, but really those sample sizes weren't large enough to, to make important uh, observations about the disease. Um, and then importantly, uh, as is the case for many rare diseases, Um, work was just kind of happening randomly. You know, one researcher somewhere would have an idea and they would work on something or they would apply for funding. But there was no sort of international plan for how we were going to take down Castleman disease. So kind of recognizing the lack of collaboration, the issues of sample sharing, and the lack of an overarching plan that's when i decided back in 2012 to start a foundation called the Castle disease collaborative network and then also to get involved in castle in disease research myself here at UPenn but really focusing from a CDCN perspective on identifying all of the physicians and researchers worldwide that were studying the disease identifying all of the patients that we could find worldwide building a community of patients, physicians and researchers that we connected virtually through an online discussion board we connected in person at an annual meeting and then we started surveying those that group of people to say what is what is the most important research question that we can ask what is the most important research study we can do to answer that question and who are the researchers worldwide that we should get to do that research or do those research studies and so this was a, a quite a fundamental change to get away from the previous approach which was where you kind of hope that the right researcher applies for the right grant at the right time and hope that you know one researcher has this you know aha eureka moment about what they should do next and it's very much a kind of a a reactive model but we said let's not do that let's let's build a community prioritize research and then let's start making sure those studies happen in a really rigorous and systematic fashion
0: in thinking these things through you got an MBA along the way. what influence did that have on your approach
1: A, a tremendous amount I so I, as, I, as I was doing Castleman disease research in my third year of medical school, And um, as I was learning... what people were doing and how the field was working, it just became abundantly clear to me that many of the challenges we were facing for Castleman disease had nothing to do with science or medicine um, or technologies available. They really were issues of people not working together well. They were kind of management issues. People weren't collaborating, samples weren't being used efficiently, funding wasn't being used efficiently. These are all business problems. And I remember telling my scientific mentors uh, as I was doing research, you know, I think I'm going to do an MBA. They, they looked at me a little funny well, you know why was you an mba you're you're a laboratory researcher you're trying to cure your disease why do an MBA? Um, but in hindsight, it was absolutely the right thing to do because so many of the challenges we faced, as I said before, are kind of management people issues, things that you don't need a medical degree to overcome. You need to be able to get people together, aligned, uh, motivated behind a common cause. You need to, to mobilize resources to, uh, to support the work that you're doing and these are the kinds of skills that you can pick up um, from, from either working in business or maybe doing uh, a business degree, um, uh, which is the approach that I decided to take.
0: We've reported on your work earlier this year on the research model forged by the CDNC and the work that Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is now doing to, to push that out. People who are interested can, can listen to a podcast we did a few months ago with Tanya Simoncelli of CZI back in June. In short, what's at the heart of the collaborative research model and how transferable is that for other rare disease groups?
1: The heart of it is that we want to get away from hoping that the right researcher applies for the right project with the right skill set at the right time, where you're basically waiting for the stars to align for your given rare disease. That is the approach that happens if you raise money and then you invite researchers to apply for it. You just have to kind of wait and hope that all these things align. We want to get away from this kind of waiting and hoping towards a process where we actually build a community and then we utilize and we leverage that community of knowledge of patients, physicians, and researchers, leverage that brain trust. To, to determine what are the most important research projects that need to be done, who are the people that can do those research studies, and then go out and proactively recruit them to do your work, to fund them, to give them samples, to support them however you can. It's a really a fundamental shift from a reactive model where you're waiting and hoping that all of these things align to a very proactive model where you're searching and figuring out What needs to be done? Who's the right person to do it? You get them to do it, and you support them along the way. We call it the collaborative network approach because critical, at the really the heart of it is this collaboration of sharing ideas, sharing samples, contributing to what is bigger than any one lab. You know, there's no way any one lab can be expected to do all these things, but as a community, you can do it. And the important thing about the collaborative network approach is that at its heart, it's patient-driven. It's an opportunity for patients to be able to be in the driver's seat um, behind pushing forward research.
0: There's a, a running thread in the book about faith and action. You were raised as a Catholic. At one point, you, as you mentioned, you had your last rites read to you. People prayed for you. They told you God had saved you because you had more to accomplish. It, it seemed to me that there was this tension for you between your faith and your identity as a, a scientist and an empiricist. You talk about the words of Pope John Paul you found in your mother's purse, and then later seeing that speech in a new light when you viewed it in its entirety. I'm wondering if you could talk a little about that and whether you've reached some resolution on that.
1: So I've certainly not reached a resolution. I think that um, many of us uh, uh, battle with and, and try to understand um, faith and life and hope. These are um, challenges, or, or not challenges. These are, are concepts that I think we spend our whole lives um, trying to understand. Um, but for me, um, though I haven't come to a clear resolution on how this all comes together and, and what this what this all means, what I ha- I have learned a lot about life from nearly dying five times. A lot about what's important in life. Um, For me, I I talk about how um, when I had my last rites read to me and when I nearly died for the first time, when I had said goodbye to my family and as I laid in my hospital bed preparing to die, I didn't regret anything that I had done or I had said. I only regretted the things that I had not done or had not said or would not be able to do in my future. And it gave me this realization that in life, If there's something that we want to happen or something that we want to do, we need to do it. If we hope for something in the future, if we hope for a treatment or a cure or for a loved one to have a better outcome, we may not be able to do it on our own. The progress we've made for Castleman Disease was not me doing anything on my own but we may be able to mobilize a community and mobilize a team to accomplish the thing that we're dreaming for, we're hoping for, we're praying for. You mentioned earlier a Pope John Paul quote, and the second, the first half of his quote encourages us to be invincible in hope, and I interpret that as saying, you know, we should feel confident in being able to hope that what we pray for will become. Uh, will become reality. Later on, he goes on to say that we need to be called to do and to to, to act to bring about that what we're hoping for and wishing for. We can't um, expect from others to be or to do what we ourselves can be or do. And so it's this concept that if we hope for something, if we pray for something, if we wish for something, we need to reflect on what that is that we're hoping for and praying for and decide, you know, what can I do? What action can I take? And some might say that that is in conflict with, um, with, with religion or spirituality because oftentimes religion teaches us to pray and to believe that it will become, it will become reality based on our prayers. Um, but I think that my experience with death, both uh, of my mother, um, my own experiences, and through my, the grief support group where I was repeatedly exposed to, to stories and experiences where where what we pray for did not become what happened. Um, I, I think I learned that maybe maybe it's not that we shouldn't pray or we shouldn't act. Maybe it's actually we should do both. Maybe it's that we should pray but we should reflect on what we pray for, and then we should see what can we do to actually make that prayer get closer to reality.
0: The book is Chasing My Cure. David Fagenbaum, co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and research assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. If you'd like to learn more about David and meet him, you can do so at the Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit that starts in San Diego, September 18th. You can find more information on the Global Genes website. David, thank you as always.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org.